Welcome to the Your Stories podcast, where we hear candid stories from people conquering cancer. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Lewis, and I am delighted to welcome Brenda Brody to the podcast today. You may recognize Brenda as one of our Your Stories podcast hosts, but she actually has her very own cancer story to share. Today, we'll be diving into Brenda's experience facing stage two breast cancer and how she's using that experience to inspire others. Brenda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So tell me a little bit about yourself, both so I can get to know you and so our audience sort of understands your personal background. I'm a single mom of a 19-year-old daughter, been a single mom since she was two. I also have a background in business and theater. I used to tour in musicals, but I have degrees in both business and the arts, which led me to the world I'm in now, which is producing meetings, conferences, but it led me to a world of producing product launches and sales meetings, which is kind of interesting because then, hence, I get cancer and add some knowledge in the background of what it takes to bring a drug to market. I'm working with physicians and doctors and patients through my career. So it's been an interesting journey professionally and personally. I am one of three girls born and raised in Washington, D.C., Spent a lot of time in New York and around the globe, you know, business-wise, and grew up in a family business. So my cousins are all my friends. And so we have a huge network of friends, which once we start talking about my journey, really made a big difference. You're quite the Renaissance woman. Thank you for that background. This is going to sound like a strange quote, at least who it's coming from, but Stalin, I want to be clear, I'm not a fan. Okay, he yeah. Said, he, he said, <laughs> Glad he you're said, clear on that. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to make headlines here for the wrong reasons, but you know, he said something really chilling that unfortunately I think is true in oncology. And he said, you know, a single death is a, is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. And, you know, the numbers around cancer are unfortunately so large that I think they become very difficult for our heads to comprehend. And so I think it's important to appeal to the heart. And I think storytelling is such an important narrative around that. And I think people really resonate with people like you who um, are willing to waive some of their own confidentiality and really make themselves vulnerable and share what they've been through. My life is an open book, so ask away. Okay. So I have this phrase I use, Brenda, called the tinnitus of terror, which means that when I first tell someone they have cancer, um, they tend not to hear very much after that. So I'm not in any way trying to bring back painful memories, but can you walk us through the experience of being first diagnosed? Sure. It was 2012. My daughter was 11. And I want to also mention that two years before, I lost my best friend and my dad to cancer. Dad had a year and a half battle and he was 85, which was devastating. But my girlfriend was very young. She was in her early 50s with two teenagers and she had kidney renal that was stage four from the beginning, sent to NIH. And I helped her with her battle for six and a half years. And it was heartbreaking. So I say that to say I learned a lot from her about battling cancer. So the day that I discovered my lump was a week before my yearly mammogram and it was a Saturday and my daughter and I were just hanging out and she wanted her cell phone and I reached over with my right arm, my left side, and I found a lump on the, from the palm of my hand. I felt something. So I had a feeling I knew what I was feeling, but I called my best friend and Monday morning, 
thanks to a girlfriend, I headed down to Sibley Hospital here in DC where they had a record from years past of my mammograms. And I called Dr. Rosavi on the phone. I happened to know her and she, it was Hurricane Sandy and she kept Hmm. the center open. Wow. Quickly after the mammogram, she came back in and said, we need to do a sonogram biopsy. So we did the sonogram biopsy and I had a strong suspicion it was cancer, though you still don't want to believe it. And then on October 31st, I got the call from the radiologist, in fact, that I did have cancer. And it was three o'clock in the afternoon. I'll never forget it. And my colorful life turned gray and black and everything moved in slow motion. And I had to go take my daughter trick-or-treating and pretend nothing was wrong. Wow. And I had to figure out next steps and also had to figure out something really important for me was how to tell my daughter and how to tell my best friend's children who I had been very instrumental in, in and involved with since she had passed. Like everyone that I mentor and talk to now that have been recently diagnosed, getting that call that you have cancer, whether you are kind of suspecting it or not, really changes your life forever. Yeah, you can't unring that bell. And that's why I think you know, the language we use in oncology is so important. I've had patients sort of hang on my every word, but you know, sometimes I'll use lesions, sometimes I'll say mass, sometimes I'll say tumor in you know, almost synonymously, but they, they tell me that they really hang on those definitions. Of course, the C word is the sort of heaviest of all. So the challenges that you faced after your diagnosis, of, of course, it's not strictly medical. It's also personal and familial. How did you negotiate that with your daughter and your family life? How did you continue sort of professionally? And just tell us a little bit about the challenges there. For me, it was it was an interesting challenge because I didn't know yet anything about my stage or my grade or anything like that. I had four lumps in my left breast. Mm. So they decided that I would meet with the surgeon and that I would have a lumpectomy because um, from the sonogram, the larger one came back cancer, the other three came back negative, but the radiologist had a hunch and I'm grateful again for that, that she took it to the next level and I had an MRI biopsy. And the night before my lumpectomy, I got the call from the surgeon that in fact, all four were cancer. And so that it was a more aggressive cancer because there was nothing the year before. So they were going to treat me um, aggressively. And we had a quick discussion and she basically said, um, you know, you have a choice to, to have a double mastectomy or not. I knew the answer of what I wanted to do, but I talked to her about it and we had a really lengthy discussion. We decided that I would do a double mastectomy and we had a suspicion that I probably would need chemo and obviously then reconstruction. So that's part of the journey um, from a medical perspective. And then from a personal perspective, I was running my own business at the time on top of raising my child alone with a dad who was not involved. So... I immediately went into business mode and I called my sisters and one of my best friends. Immediately, these two survivors came over, took off their tops, showed me their breasts and told me I was going to be fine, which is what I needed to hear from an emotional perspective. And then from a logistics perspective of how am I going to manage fighting cancer alone because I didn't have a spouse and I was running my business and I'm an extrovert and I love people, (laughs) but I became an introvert 
and I didn't want to talk to people. I was very depressed. I was fighting a lot of anxiety and depression. And so I basically gave my sisters and my friend carte blanche and they put together a spreadsheet and we really ran my cancer almost as I run my business. Thank God for a bunch of driven women. And I had chemo buddies and I had surgery buddies and my family was you know, very supportive and involved all along, but I was home alone with an 11-year-old. Yes. And the school came through and they found a parent that took my child because she went to a private school at the time mm-hmm. for kids with learning differences and it's not in our neighborhood. And then one of the students of my best friend who passed away of cancer, and she was a musical theater teacher at Catholic University, one of her students took off performing when she found out I had cancer, and she took care of my daughter every day after school until bedtime. Wow. So I had a village around me. Yes. And it was run like a very tight ship, and that was extremely helpful for me. Yeah. But I was grateful that I was able from the beginning because I knew I was stage two, grade three, but I was able to tell people that I was going to survive. And I believed it because I watched someone who was stage four and I spent a ton of time at NIH. And so I knew that the difference between stage two, even though I was grade three and it was very aggressive and they knew they were going to have to do hardcore chemo on me. I still had a lot of hope and that mattered from a a mental state. Absolutely. Wow, there's so much to unpack there. I mean, first of all, as we sort of intimated at the very beginning, I think your professional skill set almost prepared you, if that's the right phrase, for for Mm -hmm. one way to handle this pragmatically. Another thing that strikes me that you don't know about me yet, I don't think, is my wife is a physician. And I'm always struck by the phrase that, you know, Ginger Rogers had to do everything Fred Astaire did, but backwards and in heels, right? So (laughs) I think the the degree of difficulty that your situation at the time when you were having to cope with cancer, you know, running your own business, raising your daughter, largely, it sounds like on your own is, is really an incredible testament to what you and I imagine many women have to go through. There's the breast cancer community, which is sort of a model, I think, for support. That's incredibly remarkable to me that patients would come over and and sort of literally and figuratively open themselves up to you so you could have some understanding of what it was going to be like. And also, I imagine sort of embody, again, quite literally what it's like to be on the other side of of treatment. I've actually had patients, believe it or not, do similar things with stomas. So one of the great fears, many of my patients, when they come to me, especially with cancers of the lower GI tract is, are they going to need a permanent or at least a temporary ostomy? And I think that's a really tricky thing to conceptualize until you've actually seen another person with it. So my example uh, in my practice is I've had patients be um, gracious enough to open themselves up in in a similar way to the the other patients did to you. I don't know if you know this, but when we're taking our initial summary of you, the social history, it really is only required to have a few things. And I, I hate this, but this is behind the scenes, sort of peeking behind the curtain it's a reductive checklist of vices. You know, do you drink? Do you smoke? Do you use illicit drugs? And we're not really required, perhaps to our shame, to go beyond that and even know your occupation or, or much about you. So I think there's just so much in, in what you said. And I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that ultimately you're able to keep that hope kindled, even in what I can imagine are very dark times. And now, again, you're on the other side of it and helping other people deal with it. So I'm curious, during treatment, 
what were your greatest sources of support? And again, as an oncologist, I'm always curious to know what was your relationship and your rapport like with the oncologist that was you know, administering these treatments to you? Sure. My oncologist was Dr. John Walmark, and he had a physician assistant, Lisa. And every time I went to visit, it was one or the other. Obviously, it was a very professional relationship. And sure. you could tell he was trained that he had to watch, you know, the boundaries, which mm-hmm. he was very respectful. And I would say he is a research nerd, uh, which I loved about him. <laughs> he gave me such confidence. The day I walked in to meet him, of course, I was interviewing him. Yes. And I said, do you want to hear what so-and-so said at this institution? He's like, no, do you want to hear what I need to do? And I thought, oh, yeah, he knows what he's going to do. Well, it was the same protocol as everyone else, but his confidence and his knowledge in the data mattered to me. He also quickly realized that through my professional career, things I'd learned, I was also, I could be a little bit of trouble to him and myself if I Googled a little too much. So he quickly told me that, you know, it was time for me to stop Googling and to start trusting. I think his advice was a really good one. Once we had the knowledge and we knew what my protocol was going to be, there was a sense of relief that, okay, now game on. Now I know I'm fighting it and I'm going to succeed, but it's going to be a really rough battle. But there was never a question that I had that he didn't answer. And I always came with a ton of questions every time. And his physician assistant as well, I have to commend her. I thought that they were a true team, which I think really matters for a patient, that I never felt like he knew something that she didn't know. And I mentor, you know, patients now that are recently diagnosed. I have usually two a week, believe it or not, that are sent to me through different channels you go from anxiety. (laughs) And the anxiety kind of went away for me during treatment, during my chemo treatment. I see this phenomenon quite a bit. Yes. You do. Yes. So, so yeah. So the anxiety goes away, but the depression sets in. And for someone who's a people person, it freaked me out a little bit, but it really freaked out my family because no one knew what to make of it, how to help me. I did have a therapist. I did have a psychiatrist. They did put me on a nice cocktail to help me just get through it because my, my doctor was encouraging that I do something about that because it it was a rough battle in the sense that I had every side effect that is known for mm. each one of right. those chemo treatments. And so I would have my chemo on a Monday with a chemo buddy. Then I was falling downstairs. I was I, pa- I decided I wanted to take my daughter to school one day. Well, <laughs> that's just not possible when you're drugged up um, and you just had chemo that day. So I, you know, pulled over and passed it out behind the wheel. So so ER started seeing me a lot. So they started inviting me back. They found out that um, the de- dehydration was just so bad for me. So yeah. I was invited, as I like to say, on Wednesdays and Fridays to go back into the infusion room and spend a few hours getting some fluids in but, order mm-hmm. to just get me through. Because yeah. I still hear them saying, we just want to keep you on time. We want to keep you on schedule. And we're going to do whatever that takes. And we're going to keep you out of the hospital. Yes. Um, Something that I did during it, which I also encourage others, I think journaling is very therapeutic. Yeah. And I'm not a writer. I suck at writing. But 
I created an online blog that I thought was private, but I found out that if I sent it to you, you could send it to your cousin. So next thing I know, I'm being stopped on the street and I'm, you know, talking about the hemorrhoids I had yesterday. <laughs> I am a full disclosure chick if you haven't figured yes. it out. So I just told everybody everything because a lot of people wanted to know. And it was inspired by my friend who died. She was full disclosure too. And yep. I think a lot of people learned a lot from going through it with me. As well as it also, I have a lot of people who love me and I feel grateful for it, but I didn't want to talk to people. I just couldn't handle just getting through my day. And, and I had employees, so I was still trying to work, even yes. though I was going to meetings and I was 118 pounds, five, six and a half. And I looked so great. It was a nightmare of, uh, of a year. As you know, we, we also have to have heart doctors and checking in on us during chemo. Mm -hmm. I had all my doctors following as well. And they said, like you were saying, that they learned a lot watching and reading from the patient perspective yes. of what was going down and how I was being treated. But I'm grateful because I had incredible care. I had incredible support system. There are things that if I wasn't trying to be so independent now that I look back, I would have done differently to get more support for me and for my daughter. But, you know, that's hindsight. And now, you know, I'm trying to help others not make my mistakes. But chemo is rough. My statistics I know are great that I won't get back again. But I've also met many people that had cancer, including friends that I have um, that are now terminal and have had it two and three times. So I don't take that for granted that there's still not a chance that I might not get it back. So again, a lot to touch on. First of all, in regards to what you said about chemotherapy, that is a tough regimen. And when my wife was doing her training, she's a pediatrician. They did something in pediatrics that we can't ethically do in oncology, but I think it would make a huge difference. So here's, here's what happened. They made the pediatric residents taste the antibiotics that they were going to prescribe to children. They wanted the doctors to know what they were asking, especially of the parents. So for instance, if you have a child who needs clindamycin, it is kind of a nightmare to convince them to take it because it, it's so unpalatable. And I thought that was such a fascinating and smart sort of didactic exercise to have the doctors understand that. Oncologists largely have not had a taste of our own medicine. So I'm curious, when you were told about chemo, when you were consented, so to speak, did you feel prepared then for all the things that came after or were there still surprises from what sounds like quite toxic treatment? Since my friend Jane had gone through every clinical trial known to mankind for kidney renal at NIH, I had watched someone battle six and a half years of chemo. Mm -hmm. So I knew, and sometimes she would stay with me, and I knew a lot of the rough side effects of some of the really tough chemos, but I don't think you're ever fully prepared for it truly sucks you of your body, mind, and spirit. And every day getting up and trying to stay positive. And some days I just couldn't. And I right. didn't. I had right. to, you know, thanks to therapy, they they would say, you just, you need to let yourself be today. Yes. I tried all kinds of, you know, positive motivation quotes of the day I would do every morning. But the reality is it was so brutal on my body and my mind, there were days I didn't know if I could get through it. But when you're sick, the only people you want to talk to are your doctors and people who have been through it. And it's a terrible thing that I, I'm saying it here, but I didn't say it all the time to them. But 
no one understands better than someone who's treated a lot of folks who have gone through chemo or who has been through it themselves because it's toxic. Yes. The other thing you don't know about me is I got into the field because my father had almost exactly six and a half years of chemotherapy when I was a boy. Oh, wow. And we found it very socially isolating. And, you know, people keep their distance partly, I think, out of really well-intended sort of respect for the patient. You know, they're afraid that you might be immunocompromised. They don't want to bring you a contagion. Of course, that's all heightened now during COVID. But there's also, golly, I don't know if it's a stigma so much as a a sense of remove from the person who's sick. And I think that's profoundly, again, isolating. And I have to tell you, during COVID, and you're talking earlier about your social support system, I've realized just what a invaluable therapeutic ally friends and family can be for my patients. There have been times here that the virus has been so rampant that we have visitor restrictions and they can't have people come with them to clinic. They can't have people come with them to chemo. And they've even been in the hospital sometimes for weeks on end with no one no one from their personal circle. That's heartbreaking. It it is. Some of the hardest times of the pandemic have been trying to support them emotionally. And like you said earlier, there's this balancing act where oncologists and patients, if if things are going well in the therapeutic relationship, will get very close. But I also know I'm not, I'm not their best friend. I'm not, you know, certainly not a spouse. So it's been interesting to watch that. And, And like you said, at times are very, very heartbreaking about three months into COVID, I was having nightmares and I couldn't figure out why. And I was having nightmares about me being in a mask because my counts were so low during chemo. Sure, I was in a mask when I was around people most of the time. When I was prepping to talk to you today, I went back through my blog and I realized there are all these photos of me In in a mask. Like, these patients are today and the world is today in COVID and being isolated. It's very similar. Like you're saying, I think that people don't realize, but they are getting a sense of what someone going through significant chemo goes through because it is isolating and we have to be isolated if our counts are down. We have no choice and we don't feel well. Usually there's a pattern you learn, you know, is it, you know, day one and day two after chemo that you're sick, you know, you start learning your own rhythm. I wanted to ask you, I asked this of almost every survivor, how and when were you told that your cancer had, had gone away? And then what was the language that was used? Was it no, no evidence of disease? Was it remission? Was it cure? What, were the, what was the language around that? You know, this is where chemo brain is a beautiful thing. I <laughs> don't remember. I remember that vaguely. I don't know how I was told. I remember after... After my surgery, they told me that they got it all. And then a few days later, I found out I was grateful it was not in my lymph nodes. So that was huge. And I have lymphedema, which is a whole nother episode to discuss. But my surgeon felt that I was cancer-free at that point. I always remember Dr. Walmark saying that the cancer's out and we're just making sure that we increase your stats for it never coming back. But I don't really remember how I was told. Yeah, there's an interesting back and forth that happens. Again, it's a little bit behind the scenes between, in this particular case, surgeons and medical oncologists, because oftentimes the surgeon will use exactly the phrase they use with you. We got it all. But then you come to the medical oncologist and we have to also convince you that there might be microscopic residue that might have to be eliminated with chemo or suppressed with hormone therapy or both. So it's really interesting there. Sometimes the patients come to me and they have placed such weight on the surgeon's words that they don't really understand why a medical oncologist is going to be involved at all. 
I love the fact that you're still uh, continuing with your oncologist even beyond the increasingly arbitrary five-year milestone. I don't know how fabulous he thinks it is. He loves me, (laughs) but I, I don't know. You know, he's like, you really don't need me. But I mean, and he's grateful for all the work I'm doing. I mean, I, I'm, you know, very involved now through ASCO and yeah. Women Who Conquer Cancer. And I just believe that we have a long way to go with research and great things are happening, but there's a lot more to do. And part of managing my anxiety and my PTSD, I'm an A-type personality, I'm solutions oriented, and I love to help. So I believe that raising money for research is something that I can do with my skill sets and I love to do. And everybody deals differently. But for me, being able to give back and continue to help where some people are like, you shouldn't be defined by your cancer. I'm like, I am not defined by it, but it is part of my story. Yes, And I want to continue to tell my story because I'm finding that I'm able to help people. And to me, that matters. And that's why I mentor people. And by saying I'm a breast cancer survivor, People send people to me. Hey, my friend was just diagnosed. Now what? And that beginning, to me, that's the most anxious part of the whole deal. Well, the fact that you you continue to, again, speak to your own experience and help others. I mean, am I correct in saying that's how you continue to conquer cancer? Absolutely. 100%. I mean, I'm not a doctor, but I do believe that the research is important because I have a lot of friends right now and family members that are terminal. And they're being kept alive because of clinical research. I had an extra two years with my best friend and for some significant, very, very close friends and family right now that are being kept alive for clinical trials. I know clinical trials matter. Well, thank you for testifying to that. You know, I think it's very natural to think if you enter a clinical trial that you're going to be a guinea pig and that guys like me in white coats are going to loom <laughs> over you. But honestly, and, and again, I think we should make this very explicit, you know, short of dumb luck, the only way we make progress is really through very thoughtful research. And, and again, I'll speak to this. 100% agree. Right? On, on the personal side, you know, my father's diagnosis with cancer was in 1987 and his treatment, again, at the time, it was, you know, state of the art. But in just a you know, over a few decades, hindsight looks completely torturous and, and almost medieval in, in how indiscriminately toxic it was. Now, in my oncology practice, a lot of it is outpatient. Very few of my patients, and I realize this is different in the breast cancer community, actually lose their hair. We're much better able to control nausea. We're much better able to boost people's immunity. So a lot of the things have gotten dramatically better. Now, we have miles to go before we sleep. We cannot be satisfied with the current standard of care because like you said, you know, thousands, millions worldwide actually are still dying and we can't rest on our laurels even while we celebrate how far we've come. So thank you for speaking to that because I think hearing that from a patient, I think it's so, so powerful for other people to hear. And it's not a commercial. I mean, I truly believe it and I've seen it. Brenda, is there anything else that you want to say to our audience? Something I was thinking about talking about was lymphedema. I didn't realize that lymphedema was a thing. I had three lymph nodes taken out and they were not (laughs) cancerous. Right. And so we were so busy treating everything else and getting through my surgeries and getting through my chemo that I didn't realize that there could be a chance that for life I would be suffering from lymphedema, which for those that don't know, my arm swells. And thanks to Kathy Bates, again, who is an all-star now in bringing awareness to lymphedema, 
I don't have my sleeve on right now, but most days I do wear my sleeve and I take it off for meetings because I'm tired of feeling like the victim. I'm sure. tired of, I don't mind people asking questions, but I, I, I'm tired of people feeling I'm different and that they have to take care of me because I'm okay. But lymphedema is a real thing. And some days I'm in a lot of chronic pain and my arm by nightfall is completely swollen. And I've had three different lymphatic massage therapists from three different significant institutions try and help me. And it's not getting better. And, you know, they have some surgeries that are potential and I'm not ready for another surgery. I've had too many. Right. But I think that that lymphedema education is something I feel should be talked about sooner in the process. Yeah, it's such a vexing and chronic quality of life issue for so many people that have otherwise been cured of their of their breast cancer. I think you're so right about education because I do think a lot of these long-term effects sort of get lost in the initial focus on just getting through that short-term period. And lymphedema is absolutely a huge issue for, for so many women with breast cancer. Interestingly, you should know, the concern then actually gets transmitted to my gastrointestinal patients. And so it's very common. In fact, it's standard of care for um, colon cancer patients to have at least 12 intra-abdominal lymph nodes removed with their surgeries. You've done such a good job educating about lymphedema that some of my patients are worried it's going to happen to them. And I have to explain it's a completely different lymphatic distribution. But I, I want you to know the word about lymphedema is getting out there. That's great news. And I'm, I'm glad to hear it and something I deal with daily and I don't talk about often. But I thought that for those that might be listening for this, that it's so important to know that they're not alone because it is something. And like we talked about, once once you get through all, all the medical stuff, you know, I'm single, I'm trying to date. When do you start telling someone? Right. Now, luckily for me, I don't care as much, but I do feel for people that are single, that are inhibited, that aren't outgoing like me and aren't, you know, no filter, full disclosure, that have to share these things. Because even for me, you have to decide when are you going to share it? You share right. it soon, but when are you going to share it? And you want to share it in a way that someone doesn't feel sorry for you because you yeah. spend so much time feeling like people feel sorry for you when you're going through it, that now you don't want to be that victim. You want to live life to its fullest. But these are all things that make us survivors are part of you know things that we have to deal with emotionally. Thank you so much for speaking to that. I had the experience of my cancer diagnosis coming eight years into my marriage. And so at that point, it was, you know, and I'm married to a physician and, you know, we had vowed, you know, in sickness and health, but she didn't know, you know, the day that we were on the altar saying that to one another, what exactly that was going to mean. So um, I don't share the same perspective with you on, on relationships. And I can only imagine what disclosure upfront feels like. So Brenda, one of the topics that really has become very important in oncology, not that it always wasn't in the last decade is financial toxicity. So can you speak to that aspect of your care, if you don't mind? When I got the call that I had cancer, I was lucky because, you know, there are so many people that don't have financial resources. I've had a great career. I was stable financially. Um, and, and for that, I was lucky. But what I didn't realize was that trying to run a business, trying to raise a kid that was in a private school for learning differences. And she's doing fantastic. She's at college and she's doing great now. But it's because I spent the money to make sure that she got the education that she needed. But I was so used to 
taking care of myself financially, that I had a bookkeeper for my business, but I did not have anyone making sure my bills were paid on time. And I could have used it at the time because I was sick and I wasn't growing my company that year that I was sick. So I was in need of some financial resources because having cancer is expensive. It's extremely expensive. And I had very good health insurance. I'm grateful. But it did set me back significantly. And by the time I figured it out, I could not collect on my disability insurance that I had been paying in for a long time. So my my message and in sharing this is that if you are the one that is responsible and you have no backup plan for making sure that all your finances are being taken care of, I shouldn't have asked for help. Anybody could have taken it over for me. And I would have been in a different place than I am today because of it. And and cancer did set me back financially. I'm grateful because I'm healthy. But I think about all those people who don't have the resources that I had and and the positions that they're put in when they're trying to raise kids and trying to take care of their jobs, their kids, and their finances alone. So I encourage people to ask for help. And in the interest of full disclosure, Brenda, you know, oncologists get little to no training in how to help patients with their finances. You know, I often tell my patients there's the practice of medicine, which is what I've been, you know, training and practicing. And then there's the business of healthcare, which frankly, I'm very ill suited to help them navigate. And so I actually think that sometimes comes off almost as insensitive that we're not talking about cost. But I think you're onto something because I don't think it's the oncologist's responsibility. You guys have to save lives. But if there were people that could mentor and guide people from a financial perspective when they're going through these treatments, it'd be huge. I think it's back to the thread where we started of seeing the patient as a whole person. You know, you're yes. not just the host for your disease. You, you have a social life, you have finances to think about, you children, uh, your job. I mean, I think there's just, it's, it's so rich. And I'm so glad, Brenda, that I got to spend the time getting to know you as, as a whole person. And again, thank you for your spirit of disclosure. I think it takes a lot of bravery um, yeah, to sort of put yourself out there as you have. And thank you again for sharing your insights with our audience. Thank you. Hearing the experiences of others can help people cope with the challenges cancer brings. Help others find these inspiring stories by leaving a review of the podcast and subscribe today on iTunes or Spotify to hear every new episode. Thanks for listening to your stories, Conquering Cancer. The participants of this podcast report no conflicts of interest relevant to the podcast content. Full disclosures can be found on the episode page on Conquer.org. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. This is not a substitute for professional medical care and is not intended for use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests on this podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy should not be construed as an ASCO endorsement.